Okay, guys, we're in lesson three. We're going to talk about mercy and faith today. We're going to talk about mercy and faith. And I think that's going to be pretty self-evident as we go through uh, this passage here. We're going to look at uh, nine verses today, verses 12 through 20. And we're going to see, we're going to talk about mercy. We're going to talk about the mercy that was shown to Paul. Now, as we talk about the mercy shown to Paul, how do I look at that from my perspective? Well, you need to think about it in terms of mercy that was shown to you. Does everybody understand when you got saved, mercy was shown to you, right? Okay. Now, does everybody understand if you're walking with Jesus today, mercy is shown to you every day, right? Okay. So we need to understand that. So let's look at this passage together. First, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him to everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who is, who alone is wise, be glory, honor, forever and ever. Amen. So let's take a look at this issue of mercy. First of all, Paul expresses his gratefulness to Jesus Christ, who counted him worthy of the ministry. So the first thing Paul's going to do is, is he's going to express thanks that God would consider him somebody worthy to serve him. Okay? First thing that comes into his mind. Now, let me just stop. This is something that I've noticed through the years as I've been pastoring. You know, we have that tradition in our church on Thanksgiving of something that giving you an opportunity to, to, to express thanks. Now, here's what I've always noticed, because even if I make this statement, and I usually do, you should have at least something to be thankful for. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that right in itself is enough to be thankful for, that he would save you. But I'm always amazed, I've talked about this with some of the elders, I'm always amazed that when we have that testimony time, most people don't have anything to share. It's almost like that doesn't even enter into their mind a gratefulness on our part that Jesus would reach down into our world right where we're at and save us in spite of us, right? I mean, he saved us in spite of us. Because when you look around here, ain't nobody perfect. Nobody stands out. Nobody's like, oh yeah, he's definitely savable. Did you know what I'm saying? I mean... Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to be expressing thanks that God would reach down and, 
and touch our lives and save us and forgive us, but not just that. See, we, and that, because salvation is more than just that. Salvation is the relationship that you can have with God now, where he interacts with you now, where he's guiding your life now, where he's giving you strength now, he's giving you peace now. That's something to be grateful for. Paul, Paul's grateful that God thought he was worthy to even, to even use him. Did you know what I'm saying? I think that's what's missing a lot in our Christianity today in North America is, is, is the humility to say, God, if it wasn't for you, we'd be nothing. Did you know what I'm saying? We'd be nothing. In fact, how about this statement? If it wasn't for Jesus saving you, you might be like the people on TV that you don't like seeing. Ooh. Because the only thing that separates you from them is who? Jesus, right? Jesus. So gratefulness. Okay. So he stressed that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and a violent man. Paul stressed that he was a blasphemer. Now, what does a blasphemer mean? When you talk about blaspheming, what does that mean? Okay, putting Jesus down. I heard somebody say something over here. Okay. Okay, all right. So Mary says he stood everything against that the church was for. He was an, he was an insolent man, cursing. Okay. What else? When you talk about blaspheming, what you're talking about is you are speaking against God, okay? And speaking against the true God. Now, remember, when he did these things, he thought that he was serving the true God, right? But he didn't, wasn't serving the true God. So he recognizes now that he was actually working against the true God, okay? So Paul's recognizing here, this is his testimony of his life before Jesus he was a blasphemer. He was a violent man. You, do you understand? Hey, folks, I'm going to tell you, I can look at that, and I can say that before I became a Christian, I was a blasphemer. Do you know what I'm saying? Before I came to Jesus and had my eyes opened up to the truth of the true God, I could, I could think of times where I was embarrassed of making light of the things of God. Did you understand what I'm saying? Blasphemy. You know? So we can relate to Paul here, can't we? Okay? Now, he states that grace was shown to him because he ignorantly did these things out of unbelief. All right, stop for a moment. I want you to think about before you came to Jesus Christ... You sinned, right? Before you came to Jesus Christ and he gave you a new mind and a new heart, you sinned because of what? Ignorance. You didn't know any better. Your eyes were blinded to the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Your eyes were blinded to the truth. You were deceived. You weren't thinking right, but somehow, 
In God's grace, you came, here's a biblical term, came to your senses and realized your need for Jesus Christ and you accepted him by faith, right? So here's what Paul's saying. Grace was shown to him even though he was like that because the reality was he was like that because he sinned ignorantly. He didn't understand. See, grace was shown to you and I. Isn't that mercy? Because even though we were doing everything against God, not going his way, not caring, God showed us mercy, showed us grace, okay? Because we were sinning out of unbelief. Paul tells us that God's grace was more abundant than his sin. Okay, let's stop there. Because I know how we are as humans. Do you ever get overwhelmed by some of the dumb things you do? Maybe I shouldn't even use the word dumb. Do you ever get overwhelmed by the sins that you commit, that I commit? And and it wears on you, it, it oppresses you that you think, I don't know. I don't know if he can accept me. I don't know if he can love me. I don't know if he can forgive me because of this, because of this. And, and me just making those statements, something pops into your mind, okay? Here's what I want you to understand. The testimony of Paul in this passage and in other passages in Ephesians is that grace abounds more than your sin. Grace abounds more than your sin. There is more grace from God than your sin. Your sin is overwhelmed by God's grace. You may want to write that down. Your sin is overwhelmed by God's grace. That is a powerful thought, isn't it? Because that's mercy, right? That's mercy. That's enough in itself to to be thankful for, right? Because you might be here and you're defeated. Well, if I hadn't done this and I hadn't done this, because you all, because here's the thing, we live with the consequences of what we do, right? We're reminded by the consequences every day, and that just kind of blows, stares at us, stares at us. You've got to recognize, even though you face the consequences of what you do, God's grace and mercy is more abounding than what you did. Isn't that awesome? That's something to be thankful for, something to be grateful for, right? God's mercy. Paul tells us God's grace was more abundant than his sin. This overabundant grace produces love and faith in our relationship with Jesus Christ. This overabundant grace produces love and faith in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, ever, ever said a statement like this? Oh, I just want to love, I just, I wish I could just love God more. I wish I could just love Jesus more. I wish I could just be filled with the love of Jesus more. You ever make a statement like that? I've made a statement like that. How can I, Lord, just help me to love people, okay? I'm going to tell you how. Here's the secret. Grasp what he did for you. That's the secret. You want to know how to cure a critical spirit? What's a critical spirit? 
where you are critical of someone else all the time, you know whether or not you have one because you just criticize everybody for everything they do. Never, they, nobody ever does anything right. You, you know, and so, as soon as you see them, you pick out the wrong things that they're doing. You want to know how you deal with a condemning spirit where you're condemning, condemning, condemning? Here's what you got to do. Grasp the grace in your life. When you grasp the grace in your life, you'll be overwhelmed that he would save you in spite of you. So who are you to be critical of somebody else? Who are you to be get condemning of somebody else? I'm going to give you a testimony here. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been in ministry now over 20 years. In my earlier years of ministry, I had a critical spirit. I had a critical spirit towards people. And you know what? God had to beat that out of me. He beat that out of me in my first church. Humbled me through many different ways. And I'm going to be honest with you, I had to come to the realization that the person who sits across the, across the, across my desk talking to me, who's maybe struggling with an issue, is no better than me. Do you understand? Why did I get to that place? Because I began to recognize the grace that was what? Shown to me. Did you understand what I'm saying? The grace that was shown to me. This is what Paul's point is, is that the overabundant grace produces love and faith. You want to know how to love people? Be overwhelmed by the grace of God in your life. And trust me, folks, the fact that you woke up this morning and took another breath, that was grace. Do you know what I mean? That was grace. That was grace. Paul stated that Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners, of which he is the worst. Folks, put a star by this statement. This is why we're here. Now look, I love our church. I love the people in our church. I think everybody loves our church. I think everybody loves the, the acceptance and the family that we are as the body of Christ here. Am I correct in saying that? But that's not why we're here. That's not why we're here. We're here to see other people join the family. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're here to see other people feel the same love and acceptance because you work with them. You connect with them. They're your family members. You see that something's missing in their life. You see that they need an answer for something. Maybe they tried church and church wasn't the best thing for them. Maybe they got hurt in church or they got discouraged or whether, but you know that what they saw of church is not what you experienced and you want them to come to meet the same Jesus that you're meeting. That's why we're here. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to save sinners. And he said, and he was the worst. He came to save sinners like you and I. Think about it for a moment. The reason you're here is because somebody, somebody took the time to share Jesus with you, right? What if they had, didn't even bother? Do you see what I'm saying? So 
The purpose of Paul's salvation was to show the patience of Jesus as an example of others. Wow, what a statement. Paul's saying here, you know what? The purpose of salvation in my life is to tell everybody about how patient God is with me. Isn't that true of all of us? Isn't God showing through all of our lives how patient he is with us? Because if it was me dealing with me, I think I would have been a little bit rougher with me. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't think I would have had the patience God has had. But you know what? Uh, Quietly, I'm going to tell you, I'm glad he's been patient with me. Do you know what I'm saying? Because he knows better than me how to deal with me. So, Paul praises God by giving him honor and glory. This is so overwhelming to Paul as he shares this about the grace that's shown to him. We see in verse 17, he's got to stop and give a praise to God. That's what he's doing here in this passage. Verse 17 is his praise. Now to him. Now to God. Now to him, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He had to stop. You know, that, that, how many, you know, I get so busy and got so many things going on and dealing with stuff in people's lives, dealing with stuff in my own life, in my own family. I got to ask myself, how often do I just pause for a moment and say, thank you, Jesus. You deserve the glory. You deserve, deserve the honor. That's what he's doing here. Isn't that amazing? So let's continue on now. That was the issue of Mercy, we're going to talk about some instruction concerning faith. Okay, look with me, verses 18 through 20, just three verses here. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of which are Hymenaeus, and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, so let's talk about the issue of faith. We're going to see a positive encouragement here, but we're also going to see a negative example. Positive encouragement and a negative example. So, here's the purpose of the charge. Paul was giving Timothy these instructions in accordance with the prophecies made about him. What prophecies? Well, he's referring to the fact that when Timothy was set aside for ministry, there were people who made, who proclaimed truth as they were led by the Holy Spirit over Timothy's life concerning what he was to do for the Lord. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about, I'm going to give you this charge in light of the things that were said when you were set aside for ministry. Okay? So, That's what's happening here. Paul was giving Timothy these instructions. Now, what are the instructions? Well, verse 18 also tells us he says to wage a good fight. Stop for a moment. He's going to use the illustration of warfare here, but he's not talking about us physically fighting. He's talking about a spiritual fight. Everybody recognize we're in a spiritual battle, a spiritual fight? Okay, so here's what he says. 
Because of the prophecies and instructions, Timothy was to wage a good warfare. So he's using the illustration of warfare and being a soldier, and he's saying, fight a good fight. Wage a good warfare. Now let's stop for a moment. Think about how you've been living your Christian life this week. Would you say you've been waging a good warfare? Have you been a committed soldier for Jesus? You know what I'm saying? That's what he's saying. He's encouraging Timothy to wage a good fight. Now, a good warfare or a fight here refers to Timothy's ministry in Ephesus. Hey, this is the point he's making. So, like, I look at that and I can say, yeah, I can see exactly why he's using that illustration. Because, like, I look at, I've been here 16 and a half years now. It's a battle. Oh, well, you got some people that are a problem, George? No, no, sometimes Satan uses people, but there's nobody like that. It's a spiritual battle. Seriously, we recognize that some of the things that happen, I, I sit down and I talk with Lori and I say, this is the enemy attacking our church. This is the enemy trying to discourage us. God's getting ready to do something with us. He's throwing up an obstacle. This is an obstacle. We've got to pray. We've got to have faith. We've got to muscle through this, through prayer, to get to the other end of this to see what God wants to do because the enemy is going to fight against us. Here, let me tell you something, folks. Satan doesn't want our church to succeed. Satan doesn't want you to succeed in your Christian life. Do you understand? He's going to throw up every obstacle he can and attack you in every way he can to keep you from being all that God wants you to be because he knows that if you're defeated, you're not going to do anything for the Lord. Right? So fight the good fight. Muscle through it. You say, well, some days I just feel like giving up. Go to him and say, God, I need strength for the next day. Well, George, I thought I was moving forward, but I took three steps back. Then take another step forward. Because sometimes the setbacks aren't really setbacks. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the good warfare, the good warfare fight refers to Timothy's ministry in Ephesus. The manner in which he was to approach the fight was with faith and a good conscience. That's how you're supposed to approach every day. With faith and a good conscience. With faith. Faith in who? God. Do you realize that? It's not about what you achieve in life. It's about what he does through you. Because if he doesn't do something through you, it's, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. All right, let's go on. He points out that some have rejected a good conscience and faith as they shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. They've shipwrecked their faith. They've shipwrecked their Christian lives. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. you. This will raise questions about, well, were they truly saved or not? Or did they lose their salvation? I don't think we need to spend any time here on that question. It's not a question of whether or not they lost their salvation. I happen to feel that they probably weren't saved in the first place. They professed a faith. They showed up, they worshipped among the believers there, but somewhere along the line, they shipwrecked in their quest for faith. And it's because they weren't saved. 
Because if you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus. You're sealed. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. So here's a couple of guys who were in the church. They, they looked like everybody else. They prayed like everybody else. They served like everybody else. But somewhere along the line, they got shipwrecked in their faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? They got shipwrecked. And they didn't go after a pure conscience and faith. They went after their own thing. Now, he states that Hymenaeus and Alexander the silversmith had shipwrecked their faith. Now, I think I gave you a little bit of a note there concerning who these two dudes were, okay? I gave you a historical note. Uh, They professed to be Christians, but they had embraced heresies. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment. I need you to recognize that over and over in the New Testament, when it talks about false teachers and the danger of false teachers, here's what I need you to recognize. False teachers and the danger of false teachers is not because they come from outside of the church. It's because they come from inside of the church. Why? Because more than one passage says that they rise up from among us. Notice that word, that phrase, among us. So that means you need to be on guard for anybody, right? I'll give you a little story. In the 1940s, there were two young evangelists that were really preaching up a storm. One of them, you guys know, by the name of Billy Graham, right? 1948, Billy Graham really went after it. Did you know that there was another young evangelist around the same time who was an even better preacher than Billy Graham? His name was Chuck Templeton. He was from Canada, but he preached down here as well. So during the 40s and so forth, these guys were really preaching up a big storm. And to be honest with you, I thought, that's really interesting. What happened? Well, Chuck decided to go to Princeton to study at Princeton Seminary, and he shipwrecked his faith. Now, here's what he ended up doing. He ended up getting to the point where he no longer believed that there was a God. Would you say he shipwrecked his faith? Billy Graham just celebrated 99 years of life this week. Was he faithful to the end? Yeah, still is. Chuck Templeton came from among us. We've got to be careful. Because people will shipwreck their faith. You could probably think in your life... Because you have been in this, some of you have been in more churches than just this one. And you can think through your life about people who came up from the church, they started out strong, and somewhere along the line, they shipwrecked their faith and embraced some kind of heresy. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, did they lose their salvation? I would submit to you that they probably were never saved. They looked like it. Well, how could somebody, if he wasn't saved, how could he preach and people respond? Hey, folks, you're talking about the Bible where God used a donkey. Do you know what I'm saying? He continues to use a donkey. Me, okay? 
All right? Now, Paul delivered them to Satan so that they could learn not to blaspheme. Now, that's an interesting statement there. What does that mean, delivered them to Satan? What do you think that means? Yeah, they were being disciplined. He uses the same statement in 1 Corinthians 5. 5, with the gentleman who was having sex with his dad's wife, okay? And the church was tolerating it, and Paul said, you need to deliver him to Satan. What does that mean? Cast him out of the church. To be delivered to Satan doesn't mean that you say, okay, you're Satan's now. No, it means that you're cast out of the church into the world. Why? So that through the discipline, you will come to your senses and come back to the church in repentance. That's what it's talking about here. Okay? Yeah, Paul, yeah, as long as they were living, they had hope. Long as they were living, they had hope, because that's why they were disciplined. For the purpose, look, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Here's what it says about the purpose of why we would deliver them to Satan, why we would cast them out. See, a lot of people have a bad attitude about church discipline, but if church discipline is done properly for the right reason for reconciliation, you'll see that there's a reason for it. And the reason is always, always restoration. Okay? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's he saying? Give him up over to the world. Cast him out so that if he goes on his own and he destroys his life by going off against the Lord, somehow he'll come to his senses so that ultimately what? His soul would be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? A good illustration of that would be the prodigal, right? The prodigal son. Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance, which in that culture means, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Dad lets him go off and spend it. What happens? He goes off and in destitute because of his sin, finds himself eating pig food. And then one day the scripture says he what? Came to his senses. That's what discipline's about, for restoration, okay? Restoration. Next week, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about prayer next week.